Hi everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Food and Life podcast, a podcast all about food and that thing called life. I'm so excited about today's interview with Marion Kane. She's one of Canada's most famous food journalists. She worked at the Toronto Star for over 18 years and she was a food editor and columnist there. I've read one of her books, it's called Dish. It's really well written and I love how entertaining and funny she is as a writer. So I'm very excited to chat with her today and Marion has a really great perspective on the changing face of journalism today and not only food journalism but journalism as a whole as we shift from print media to all things digital. She also tells us about her love of spam fritters and she gives advice for young people looking to enter the world of journalism today. So let's dive in and chat with Marion. Okay, hello everyone. I'm sitting here with Marion Kane and I'm very happy to be here today in her living room in Toronto, Ontario in Kensington Market. And I met Marion about three years ago, I think, here in Toronto. And I found her online somehow. And when I saw her website, I was so excited to and curious about this person. Who was she? It looked like she had done such interesting things and that she really knows her stuff. So let's dive in and we'll chat with Marion today. So I thought it would be a good idea to start off with Marion telling us about herself and her career as one of Canada's most famous food writers. People have called me a veteran food journalist. I don't like that term. I like seasoned food journalist better. (laughs) I've been around for 40 years in this profession. I write and do radio podcasts and occasionally television. And I'm in the thick of the food media where I want to be. I got into this by accident in 1976, actually. It dates me. (laughs) A friend who was writing about food for Toronto Life asked me to do some restaurant reviews. And the first one was an English restaurant in the East End called Pimblet's run by an eccentric English guy who served traditional British food, steak and kidney pie, fish and chips, shepherd's pie, uh, puddings of all kinds, toad in the hole. And I wrote a review for her and she said, you're good. And she gave me more. Then she resigned from her job and she encouraged me to apply for it. I got it. It was as contributing editor for the Gourmet Guide to Toronto Life. I did that for a few years and then by accident I landed up at the Toronto Sun. A friend again phoned me and said, They're looking for a food editor. (laughs) And I applied. An eccentric guy hired me, who was the life editor, and he took a shine to me. I've never, I I had never used a computer. And in 1983, the computers were huge, clunky things called word processors. And I sat down on my first day and I didn't know how to write on the computer. 
but I somehow figured it out. I wrote a story about Jewish ladies making latkes, and he, my editor, said, where's the picture? (laughs) I didn't think it needed a picture, a photo. And he said, "Um, a first lesson in media, in the print media, you need a picture. They don't read the paper. (laughs) 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 So I spent six years at the Toronto Sun, and then the Toronto Star wooed me away. Over to you. Wow, very interesting. So you've really done a lot and you've worked for different papers and then the Toronto Star as well. So what advice, if you were going to talk to a young person, what advice, someone who's really into food, what advice would you give them about their career? Well, nowadays it's very different. It's more difficult. The print media has, it's gone the way of the dodo bird The Toronto Star, where I worked as food editor for 18 years, has gone from 350 people in the newsroom to about 80. It's decimated. I resigned in 2007. It was a good time to resign because that's when the disrepair started and the diminution of the newspapers began. I hasten to add that I love this job, being in the food media. It suited my personality and my talents. I love food and cooking, and I love people. And it was an excuse to get into kitchens and people's lives with a, you know, legitimate reason. I wanted to know what they fed people and what they fed themselves and how they cooked. And everyone eats and everyone almost can cook something. And everyone wants to talk about food, from cab drivers to professors. Mm -hmm. Every walk of life, people have a kinship with food and a fellowship that involves sharing meals. That's true. It touches so many lives. And you've referred to it as something. And that was the ultimate connector or yeah. the universal connector. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've read that before. But back to the advice for young people, it sounds like you're saying don't go, don't think about a career for a traditional newspaper or something like that or print media. Did I get that right? You're, it sounds like you're saying stay away from that. But there are a few, are, there are some jobs in that field, I notice. What jobs? <laughs> well, there are editors. Um, there are magazine yeah. managers, editors, people writing for magazines, doing photography for magazines. Yeah, there are online recipe blogs and there are cookbooks. Cookbooks will be eternally popular. And food gurus all around the world have a following like Nigella Lawson, Jamie Oliver, Americans like the people on the Food Network. Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain. That's a tragic loss. I'm still getting over it. It's been three weeks since he committed suicide. And I wrote an article about him in 2000 when he's just written Kitchen Confidential. And I miss him. 
I thought he was the shining light of the food media. He was brilliant, eloquent, and original, and intrepid. He tread where other people didn't dare to tread, and that I value fearlessness above all. In what way did he go where other people wouldn't want to go or didn't go? Well, he went to dangerous countries. He was in Libya, <laughs> where his crew were ambushed and told to flee the area. They were in some forbidden area, and he went to countries where food was strange. He ate things that many people wouldn't eat, <laughs> insects and in innards of animals. And he showed the killing of animals, which is controversial. And he spent time with the real people, grassroots people. <laughs> he didn't like all the food he tasted. I remember an episode where he was in Russia and a woman, a stern, unsmiling woman, cooked him a dish called kulibyak. My mother used to make that. It's a fish pie with pastry on top and rice in it. And he's, <laughs> she baked that and shut him in a room, a dining room, an ornate dining room, to eat it alone. <laughs> and he said, this is the most joyless experience of my life, and I'm glad I have a bottle of vodka to wash it down. <laughs> you know, he was original. Most people on TV say, this was the best thing I've ever eaten. And he wasn't afraid to call something unenjoyable. Interesting. I haven't really dove into all his work. I did read Kitchen Confidential. I didn't finish it, though, but I did pick it up and go in. And uh, I know people are really sad about about that loss. So why don't we step back and go back to your childhood and how you grew up and how you first became interested in food. I think people would like to hear about that. And I read about it in your book, but maybe you could share with us a bit about that. Well, I have to say I'm of a certain age. I'm 71. I was born in 1946, post-war, early baby boomer. And I was born in Montreal to Jewish parents. My mother was a Holocaust refugee from Latvia. My father was a Montreal born and raised in the Jewish ghetto of Saint Laurent, the Maine, Alain Mordecai Richler and Irving Layton. He went to Baron Bing School and they met at McGill as students. My father graduated as a doctor and he wanted to work in England. So at age four, we went to England to live. Wow. And I lived in London for 15 years, formative years. But we were always like fishes out of water. We were Jewish. <laughs> my mother had a European accent. My dad was tough, Canadian, outspoken, um, rebel. And we were bohemian in a way. And in the midst of a white-bred, white-collar suburb of London. So we didn't fit in. And we ate funny food. 
My mother cooked European food and Jewish food. My father used to make salami and eggs on the weekend, and he used to make a pilgrimage to a Jewish deli around the corner called Zlotnik's. There were few Jewish delis, and he found one. So my mother used to make European cakes. That was her specialty. Linza taught pies, and Russian, Jewish, Eastern European main courses like beef stroganoff and European dishes like schnitzel. We had rye bread. And my friends used to come to our house and wonder what this food was. In contrast, I would love going to their houses and eat English food, cream buns, salad of tomatoes and lettuce cut up, with salad cream, Heinz salad cream. I used to love English things, and I used to especially love the school lunch. The hot lunch served at school was subsidized in those days, post-war, and they were roast beef and, you know, salad and greens and hot puddings, steamed puddings. I liked especially the Spam fritters. <laughs> I used to eat my friends' Spam fritters <laughs> because they didn't like them. <laughs> they were unhealthy, to say the least. And my mother claimed, when I asked her to make them, not to understand the concept. <laughs> she was a bit of a gourmet cook, and uh, she didn't want to cook Spam fritters. So... I got interested in food because I noticed that it says a lot about people what they eat. Yeah. And friends didn't want to eat the food at my house. They were approaching it with trepidation. And I wanted to eat every kind of food. So I don't think I don't eat anything. I'm like Anthony Bourdain. I'm curious to try anything that's put in front of me. Yes, it's all about taste and texture. And texture is the most important thing. Chewy, crunchy, combined with creamy and soft is the ultimate combination of textures. Chewy and crunchy combined with creamy and soft. Yes. So that to me sounds like a croquette, croqueta, the Spanish croquetas, the breaded bechamel sauce, something like that. You know who do the best at textures in food? The Chinese. I go to a restaurant where they make the best roast duck and the skin is crispy and underneath the flesh is soft and juicy and they serve it in a pancake that's tender and soft. That's the combination of taste and texture. I had a lunch out recently where they served steak and mashed potatoes. It was very well done, but they had sprinkled something crunchy on top of the steak. And I went into the kitchen, as is my wont, and talked to the chef and asked him what these crunchy bits were. And they've shaved carrots and plunged them in boiling water and fried them. They were crispy little tiny nuggets that made the dish. Hmm. 
That sounds interesting. I'll have to look out for that kind of thing next time I'm out to eat or something. So it sounds like when you were growing up, you really noticed a difference by going to your friends' houses or eating at school and then going home, Mm -hmm. like the way that food can differ from family to family. and, And then you became a food writer later on in your life, but almost by chance. But then once you started doing it, you realized you loved it. Would that be right? Yeah, you summed it up very well. Uh, Actually, my family were scientists. My parents were both scientists. My dad was a doctor and researcher, and my mum was a biology teacher, high school. And I didn't have role models for journalism, but I did have role models for cooking. The best times in our house were at mealtimes. My family was a bit chaotic and unstable. (laughs) And I found mealtimes. The one time that I had peace of mind and meaningful connection with my family. And I followed this through in later life. I had dinner parties often. I don't have them so often now. But I look to cooking as a soothing influence. When I'm feeling bad, I bake a cake routinely. I often have to take the cakes to the mission, (laughs) to my office, (laughs) so I don't eat them. But food is emotional calmness to me. And a friend once told me he was a teacher in a rough school, and he did conflict resolution as a sideline. And he said, I always take some food to the sessions I have, be it an orange or a cake or a cookie. So it breaks the tension and it elicits sharing and connection. I feel that way with food. Interesting. And so I know on your website, and, and I've read places that you refer to it as the universal connector. Yeah. So I w- I'm curious to know what you think about our food system today and how we value food here in Canada today. Well, I, I think it's shocking and cruel that many people don't have food. I've written about that regularly, and I've done podcasts with the homeless people. I go to a homeless memorial once a month in downtown Toronto where we honour the people who have died on the streets. And a woman called Mary Lee Houston cooks a meal for 100 people at her home in a tiny kitchen. And I went with her once to cook mac and cheese for 100 people. And then we served it to 100 people after the memorial. And it was touching and compelling and powerful, the way food. You know, food is a necessity. It's fuel. And if you start the day off without food, it affects your whole being, your health, your mental state, and your mood. And food and housing, a roof of one said, should be a requisite for each person in Canada. I can't believe it's not. We're a wealthy country and people are lying on the streets in all kinds of weather, homeless and hungry. 
it's a shame and it shouldn't be. So one of my messages is to get out that affordable housing needs to be built and food should be available to everyone. Have you heard about this new pay-what-you-can grocery store that opened here in Toronto? I haven't been there, but I know about Jagger Gordon, and he does good work. There are various people doing good work, and they are my heroes. But it should be the government doing that work. We all pay taxes, and it shouldn't be that people wandering the streets, vulnerable to addictions and illness, should be out there. I I think it's wrong, and we have our priorities all wrong. In what way? Like, in what way are they all wrong? Well, in England, when I was a child, during my whole school years, from 1950 to 1965, there were almost free lunches. They were subsidized, uh, but they were a shilling a day. It's a dollar about. And it was government mandated to all people, rich and poor. Every state-run school had that program, and they were dinner ladies dishing it out and washing the dishes, and it was a focal point for the day. Everybody complained about the school dinners, but they were delicious. (laughs) In hindsight, it was a tradition to complain about them. But we used to eat fast, (laughs) Uh, There were 15 minutes allowed for two courses. But, you know, I look fondly back on these days. And children don't have that kind of program. It starts with the kids, children, developing good eating habits and developing strong bodies and minds. People can't learn. Children can't learn with an empty stomach. Yeah, I could imagine that would be very difficult. It sounds like affordable housing and food for everyone is something that you're very passionate about. Yeah, that's my message. I want to make a difference in my field. It's no good writing about the latest balsamic vinegar or the latest fad in fermentation. I gather that's the latest fad or kale ad nauseum. I like kale. (laughs) It's become very trendy lately. Yes. It's passe by now. Avocado toast is the current thing. (laughs) And uh, I don't know what. Fashion in food doesn't interest me, but I like cooking with good ingredients. I go far to find the best ingredients. I live in Kensington Market, so I don't have to go far. But I choose my ingredients carefully. So um, I also wanted to ask you, we're switching gears a little bit. You've met quite a few food celebrities as well. We've talked about Anthony Bourdain, Mm -hmm. and you've also met Nigella Lawson and Julia Child and... Sophia Loren, even though I don't think I'd call her a food celebrity. What's, uh, what inspires you most about these people? Well, I was thinking about Nigella today. She is beautiful inside and out. I met her twice to interview her, once in a hotel room about 10 years ago in Toronto, and the second time two years ago 
My mum died the week she was coming to Toronto and I couldn't interview her. She and I got along like a house on fire. We're kindred souls. I said that to her at the end of the interview when we discussed the many things I'd made out of her book and she was so pleased at that. <laughs> she said I showed her a photo of a cake I'd made and she said, you made it better than me. <laughs> so I said at the end of the interview, we bonded. And I said, we're kindred souls. And she responded, we're kitchen cousins. So most of the food celebrities I have a bond with because we're passionate about the same thing, food and cooking. And I met Massimo Bottura last year, and we had a bond because he has a mission. He's a chef in Italy who has a mission to stop waste worldwide in food. And he's got a refectory in Milan that serves food to the homeless every day. And he's set up ones in other places. And I wrote an article in 1992, How to Be a Green Cuisine Queen. And there's a photo of me dressed in cabbage leaves. A friend made me a cabbage dress, a bodice, a revealing dress, tight dress, uh, out of cabbage leaves. I had a tiara of vegetables and earrings <laughs> with carrots. <laughs> and I had a scepter of vegetables, an artichoke. I've seen that photo. Yeah. I showed it to Massimo and he was smitten with it and we got on on the same level. I have a mission to stop food waste whenever possible. I make things today. I made a green soup out of all the green vegetables in my fridge including lettuce, including the green parts of leeks including a leftover cabbage. It incorporated some leftover broccoli and frozen spinach, and it was delicious. It's one of Barbara Kafka's recipes, and it's a brilliant recipe. If you want to lose weight, and I do at this moment, it's a boon. So food waste is another thing. People throw out too much food, and companies throw out too much food. Hugh Fernley Wittenstall in England has a mission to stop food waste. He has a TV show where he reveals how much dumpsters hold from supermarket food that they throw out daily. Best before date passed and they throw it out. It shouldn't be. They should recycle the food and not waste it. His bottom line, Massimo's, is don't buy so much food. <laughs> and I try to keep that in mind. Yeah, food waste is definitely another surprising issue. And especially when you link it back to the hungry people that we were talking about earlier. So we've covered a lot of ground here. Was there anything else you wanted to share with us? 
<laughs> I said the other day to my partner, Ross, I am happy in the knowledge that I've given the world one thing, my recipe for applesauce. <laughs> It's on my website. It's a video of my applesauce recipe. I think too many people do things the wrong way. And it's a sin to add liquid to apples when they're cooking. They don't need it. They have their own flavor, beautiful flavor. Bake them in the oven and mash them up. That's how you make applesauce. <laughs> I think you've had much more to contribute than that. <laughs> Let's be honest. Four books, numerous podcasts, numerous articles in newspapers and magazines. Actually, I wanted to ask you as well about your podcast and how you find having a podcast versus writing about food. I'm much better talking than writing. I write well. I'm not going to apologize for that. But I'm a talker and I want to look people in the eye. I feel a proximity to people I'm talking to and trying to communicate with is important. And it's more intimate to talk to them than write about them. In their own voice, people say the most amazing things to me. I've done a series of podcasts about addiction in the food industry. I've had a brush with it, and I know full well how it can be a gift and a curse. But people told me the most intimate things about their addictions, and willingly, actually, because they knew several chefs, knew I understood, and they wanted to help other people. So look for those interviews on my website. That's a taboo subject in most societies, and it shouldn't be, because it helps people when people talk about it, who've experienced it. So I have a responsibility, I feel, to teach people. I'm a teacher in a former life, and I feel it's my job to entertain but also to educate. So podcasting, audio interviewing is the best way I find to do that in a deep, meaningful way. Interesting. And what I really appreciate about your podcasts is the humor, especially the intro. Uh, it's a good laugh. So your podcasts are at marionkane.com or you can find them on Apple iTunes and it's sitting in the kitchen is what it's called. And anyone interested in anyone interested in food basically will enjoy your podcast and they're usually a good laugh too. <laughs> so be sure to check those out. And thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mary, and it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Mary. You did a good job. Thanks. Thank you. And that was my interview with the lovely Marion Kane, and it's always a pleasure chatting to her. So if you'd like more information about Marion, you can head on over to my website, marywales.com forward slash episode two, and I'll have some information there in the show notes, including links to her podcast and her website. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful and inspired day.